Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for turning up thus far. We have um, the, the number of attendees is, is rapidly increasing, but as Fred mentioned, we do have a number of questions. I think it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions that were sent by you guys before we uh, before before this webinar started, and we'll just go through them very quickly right now, because hopefully we'll answer a good chunk of them in the next hour or so. Uh, one question is, I would like to know how to actually convince non-reliability folks the value. The next one is the total cost of ownership is for me the way to motivate reliability work. How is that related to the value map? The next one is who owns reliability at the plant? What are the skills and competencies needed for managing reliability on site? Uh, another question is, do you have a sense of the, the order of magnitude of value reference people who people should bring to an organisation? Is it two to one? Is it cost five to one ten to one okay that's an interesting very quantitative approach uh now the, the next one is not so much a question more a statement reliability map for reliability culture and reliability map for how to operate reliability i think um uh, not entirely sure where that's heading but we can perhaps clarify that during the webinar itself uh, next question what about clients who don't see the need for reliability or ram generally even if the obvious contributor to safety or other kpis that's a Really good one, um, and I sense both. I might be wrong, but I see the acronym RAM there, so you might be talking about military clients. Um, and reliability is often the poor cousin to other areas. How do we get a seat at the table when we are sometimes isolated? So these are all re really good questions. Some of them relate to reliability. Some of them, some of them, re uh, reliability value. Sorry, uh, a good chunk of them relate relate, relate to cultural or organisational aspects of your life. But uh, we'll, we'll do our level best. To, um, uh, to, to go through and perhaps at least touch on some of those questions and answer them very directly. So uh, we, have, we have 45 online right now. With any luck, one or two more will join us soon. We had a few more registrations than that, but by way of introduction, my name's Chris Jackson. If you want, want to learn more about me, please go to the Ascendo, uh, reliability, Ascendo Reliability website. Um, but I know you know how to get there. So today we're going to be talking about a reliability value map. And the reliability value map is a tool that can be very useful for you to work out every last bit of value associated with reliability performance. So before we start, I'm gonna talk about uh, uh, this guy here. He was uh, some of some attendees to previous webinars, and I know people have listened to Fred in the past will know who this guy is, or at least know who I'm referencing, will know what I'm referencing once I start talking about him. This guy is John Young. He was the CEO of Hewlett Packard in the 1980s, and they very famously went on a reliability-centered uh, program of, of improvement and change. And he called it the 10X program because he wanted to essentially reduce the failure rate, which was, was the Hewlett Packard's lexicon for essentially warranty returns, to uh, by a factor of 10 over 10 years. And some of these are direct quotes for him and he was uh, rhetorically answering this question here, which is what tangible results have we seen the past few, result, uh, past few years sorry, as a result of the 10X project for reliability improvement? So this, uh, these comments were, were provided about three to four years into this overall 10 year program. Uh, and, and it goes to what we're trying to talk about today. What is the value of good reliability performance? So one of the first things that, the, that he noticed was that the cost of service and repair of desktop computers was reduced 35%. So the cost of service and repair was reduced by over a third just by focusing on reliability. So you guys all know how expensive it is to maintain and fix stuff. If you, you would kill to have uh, a, a one third reduction in, in the amount of money you spend on those sorts of things. And these guys, very quickly got that level, this level of benefit, uh, just a couple of years in this 10x, uh, 10x program. In another division, uh, time for two of our most popular os oscillopes, oh, sorry, oscill oscilloscopes, my apologies, dropped by 30% and product defects declined substantially, allowing us to cut prices 16%. Now, this is one of the things that people really forget about reliability. If you if you have a, a, a reliability mindset from the start, your schedules for production and development will almost overwhelmingly decrease substantially. 
because you're not having to firefight crises that you find out at this gate assessment, this design review board, so on and so forth. It's, it's been our experience that whenever you really take reliability seriously from day one, things just don't explode, um, catch fire, or otherwise ruin your budget and schedule during the design uh, design phase itself or production phase itself, let alone when the customer gets it, they get this wonderfully reliable product which which took you less time and less money uh, to, to, uh, to build. And this is one of the key messages of reliability that a lot of non-reliability folks really struggle to see. They see reliability expenditure as something which imposes delay, imposes over, uh, budget overruns, but in practice it prevents so much bad stuff before you even think about production that it's almost always much cheaper. Another example of what uh, Hewlett Packard achieved in terms of value from focusing on reliability, they were able to cut inventory company-wide by about from 20.2% of sales to 15%. So that means that for they were able to reduce about 5% of, uh, sorry, if you took a look at the start of the uh, 10X project, they were able to reduce 25% of their stockholding just to do, do the ongoing warranty and repairs. Now, that meant that they had saved $200 million in 1982 dollars uh, just by not having um, not having to have so much inventory stored. So this is a second order effect of improving reliability, something you don't ordinarily think of. But when we focus on reliability, we can get too focused on just the cost of failure in a very uh, local perspective. We want to make sure that everyone is able to understand the full breadth and depth of value associated with reliability. And it usually, usually permeates all parts of your business. So without even having to look at the very, um, uh, the, the very direct uh, benefits of having something work first time all the time, you can see that in this example I've just talked about, there are so many second order benefits which usually dwarf um, any expenditure you think you're going to have to uh, part with when it comes to making reliability a, problem, a, a priority. So, how do we establish the reliability value proposition? What we're talking about here is you as a reliability engineer or you as any sort of engineer, you are coming up with, you, you're, up a, you're, a, you're, you're, uh, you're in a scenario where you need to, for example, try and convince the decision maker that this is the right thing to do. And obviously the decision maker will want to uh, understand that they will get value from what it is you're asking them to do. So if you're asking them to invest in a test chamber or do, doing FAMIA, how much value will that provide them later on? And there are some good ways of doing this, there are some bad ways, and there are some inherent problems, especially when you're dealing with decision makers who aren't rational or have a different uh, set of values to that, which uh, uh, that uh, different set of values to the value associated with your organisation. So one of the first things you can do is start with the creation of a reliability, availability, and maintainability value map. And this is just realistically an organised visual brainstorming session. And you, sh you should often do it with a bunch of other people. With, who come from different walks of lives in, uh, in, in your organisation. The people who maintain, the people who repair, the people who have to uh, uh, develop business and have to sell to customers that this is a reliable product or otherwise. The warehousing people who have to stock all the, all the, uh, all the repair parts. The, uh, the people who are responsible for overtime, the people who are responsible for trying to uh, uh, maintain everything not just the actual repairs and the, and the uh, servicing of the equipment in, in question. So it all comes down to value. We always start with value. Now we're not going to go into what value means uh, for each organisation here today. That's, that's a conversation that's been part of a separate webinar, but you need to understand what value means to your organisation. Is it profit? If it's a commercial organisation, typically yes, it is profit. If you're a military organisation, what is, value what does value mean to you if you're a if you're any other organization which doesn't make a profit what does that mean for value so before we go on i would ask ask the uh, the attendees what does value mean to you 
and perhaps your organisation. Please feel free to pipe up or uh, submit a question or, or enter your response in the chat window. Customer satisfaction, is that, uh, did I see that question pop up in response to this or is it a something that the customer is willing to pay for? Okay, schedule fidelity. Less returns defects. Repeat customers. These are all really, really good answers. But I'd actually challenge uh, time for markets another good one. I challenge all that all 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 of you who put those answers on on the, our chat window paper. I challenge you just uh, to look at what really matters for your organisation. And I would suggest to you that there is typically an overarching um, there's an overarching value definition for your organisation. Why do we want to have less time to market? because we can get our product out there because that then allows us to get more market share, which allows us to generate more profit. Look at another one, less returns defects. We want fewer returns and defects because, well, that means we have to spend less money on repairing those uh, returns and defects. So that's one part of it. But it also means that we don't erode our brand or reputation value, which means that we have higher market share, which means that we generate more profit. So we can often make it really simple. If it is profit, we simply say profit and work out what parts of profit matter to us. Return on investment is another one. Um, let's see what we've got down here. A performance KPI in the field. Well, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad that was a response because what is a KPI? A KPI is a key performance indicator, which is uh, which is could be number of customer complaints, it could be the amount of leakage, it could be any number of things, but we need to be clear that KPIs support whatever it is we define value to be. We don't wanna have KPIs become the main, the main focus of what it is we're trying to do. For example, if we wanna reduce customer complaints, the easiest way to reduce customer complaints is to stop, stop selling everything. So we have no customers. Now that might sound flippant, but it, it raises the point, it, it's trying to illustrate the point that the real value of what we're trying to do as a company or an organization or a, uh, or a department is something simple, something bigger, and it is essentially our raison d'etre. What is it we are here to do? In most commercial organizations, it comes back to the almighty dollar which gives us a hint about where we're going to go next. So when we talk about value, we break it down to four different uh, categories, at least at the high level. We have return, outlay, support, and the asset. Now, two of these uh, represent the addition of value and two of these represent the subtraction of value. So let's go through all of these right now. So, oh, sorry, the animation is not working very well for me right now. But when it comes to returns, we're always interested in what we call the measures of effectiveness. What is a measure of effectiveness? A measure of effectiveness essentially is how we measure how successful our organization is. In, and I'll keep coming back to commercial organizations, it essentially comes down to something as simple as profit. If you have that simplicity in terms of what it is you define value to be, it makes everything else really, really simple. So we might talk in terms of the return, uh, if our value is all about profit, then how we, uh, how we increase profit or how we generate profit is based on revenue, which is uh, a system sales related income or production related income. If perhaps you're a, you're a mining organization or a production facility where you are creating stuff, you are treating a mineral. Um, so it's all about the revenue, the, the amount of money some customer is going to give you uh, when you create your thing. And that might, so your measure of effectiveness might be related to revenue, for example. So it can come from uh, the sale of, sale of goods or the sale of uh, mined minerals or whatever it, whatever product you're, you're um, processing. So this is a monetary based benefit. 
On the flip side, we have capability-based returns, which is a non-fiscal functionality. And this is where our militaries come into play. We might have emergency equipment that, uh, that our search and rescue organisations need to have ready to go at, at any, any single point in time. These organisations aren't there to, to make a profit. They're there to provide a service. <clears throat> and so we call this a function-based benefit. And you need to obviously know which one is, uh, is the most important one for you. So in this case, the benefit is based on money. And this one, the benefit is based on functionality or capability, your, your ability to rescue people, your ability to deter attacks from a foreign aggressive nation, for example, which can be very difficult to conceptualize. So you need to understand what, what it is that matters the most. So these are our two basic uh, concepts of return. It's usually revenue or capability based. Now let's look at the outlay piece. And this is where most uh, decision makers tend to sort of lump reliability. It's an outlay, they can't see the return. But we need to be be uh, be realistic about this. We need to understand that if we're going to do reliability, we do need to invest some costs uh, up front. So there's a cost of raising capital. If you have to uh, purchase a halt test chamber, you not only have to get that money to to spend on 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 that thing, but actually getting money incurs a cost. And we often refer to these sorts of costs as a weighted average cost of capital. And this is very important to understand. Money just doesn't come from nowhere. I know you guys will know this, but there is actually a cost associated with generating capital uh, that your initiative will take up. And if you're aware of it, it puts you in a much better position to talk the, the language that matters to the decision makers. So the weighted average cost of capital is the ongoing fee a company pays creditors, shareholders, and owners for the capital they provide. So someone will invest in your company. A bank loan is a form of invest, investment in a way, but your shareholders, the, 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 the investors in your organisation have potentially given your organisation money and continue to give your organisation money for you to do stuff with, and they expect a return on that. It's market-based, um, and if they believe they're not being paid enough, they're going to invest their money elsewhere. So you need to make sure that when you are spending $50,000 on a whole test chamber, not only uh, taking into consideration that, that total amount of money, you need to be aware that that is actually coming at an additional cost. You're paying someone to give you that $50,000 to spend on that test chamber. And they better see a return on that. Then there's the opportunity cost. What are the missed benefits of spending money on something else? And this is a, this is a key characteristic of management decision-making. Realistically, no one wants to not spend money on reliability. They don't want to not spend money on the other things that they see that spending money on reliability precludes. So this is where it comes down to opportunity costs. And you understand this, uh, if you understand this very well, you start talking the language that the, uh, the decision makers start, uh, start to use. So an opportunity cost is the less of potential gain um, from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. So managers typically see this opportunity cost when they're talking to you, the reliability engineer, about what, why we should spend money on this test chamber. If they look at that $50,000, at $10,000, at $100,000, whatever the investment is, as, as something that can either impact their bottom line, their KPIs, their personal goals that they get, they get, uh, they, they get assessed on, or it can mean that they can't invest into making that product or that device more functional. There's always an opportunity cost. We need to get into that, uh, that discussion for us reliability engineers to be relevant. So there's the outlay. The next thing that we, uh, next value that we do create is asset value, which is sometimes understated, sometimes overstated, but it's a, it's a source of value nonetheless. And that means uh, when we get something, we actually have something of worth in our organisation. We have a halt test chamber. That means in two to three years' time, that halt test chamber will still retain value. You might have spent $60,000 on it in, in 2020 and in, in 2024, it will be only worth $25,000. But that is still uh, value that we need to, need to consider. And of course, if you can't make or realise that value in the future, you can't liquidate that asset. Realistically, you, you have minimal value uh, to be ret retained. But 
if you uh, if you have a business plan for your for your reliability team where it involves recoup uh, recuperating or or, um, uh, or or somehow retaining the cost of your asset in terms of how you how you uh, calculate value, then your business case is that much stronger. So it's always a procurement cost and the depreciation. How much how much value that thing loses over the years? And it's not just it can't be just notional. It needs to be something that um, that you can actually turn into cash or into value or whatever MOE matters to your organisation. And depreciation can be based on reliabilities. So how much money can I hypothetically make from selling this test chamber a number of years into the future? And then there is the support costs. And this is where reliability really, really matters. We're talking about support costs are costs that erode from your, your notion of value. So it's a negative, uh, it's a negative metric in a way. But Reliability is all about minimising the support costs for your thing, your system, your device, your product. And uh, support includes essentially prevention, doing something about a bad thing happening which incurs a penalty. So you've got condition-based maintenance, feature-based maintenance for those, for those of you who are doing big data analysis, there's preventive maintenance. All those things are things that we can invest money in now, we'll lose that money, but the idea is we're preventing events that incur costs later on. And the other sort of support costs are remediation support costs, the corrective maintenance. We should also consider damages here on where do we get our damages from? We get them from our risk assessment. We might have to uh, have insurance for our product or system, which is based on the, uh, the, the effects of our things Failing. I can see a question coming here. Uh, do companies tend to heavily invest non-reliability capabilities because they result in, I think, tangible achievements such as profits, whereas the effect of improved reliability capabilities can only be seen in stats? It's a really good question. It's been our experience, and I'm sure Fred can, can back this up too, um, that if you invest in reliability, you actually make a ton more profit so we'll go back to what John Young said at the start of this lesson, or the start of this webinar, sorry. He said that when we focused on reliability, our time to market decreased. The number of defects we were experiencing during production decreased. Because they were spending much less on producing this equipment or these his products, they were able to drop the uh, recommended retail price of that product. So to answer your question in, in maybe in a couple of ways, non-reliability folk can't easily see or tend to not easily see that sort of value. They don't easily understand that if we invest in reliability up front, we actually save ourselves tons of crises, tons of emergencies, tons of uh, schedules being blown out because something far we weren't anticipating essentially because we think about reliability from the start. We, we create our first design as a reliable design, so we have much less, much fewer surprises. It's been our experience that you, you have that reliability mindset from, from the start, your production, uh, your production uh, uh, budget and, and, and schedule is almost boringly, uh, it just doesn't get challenged. We just don't see these huge issues, these, these, these problems are cropping up. So people only see uh, the sort of statistical second order effects or just short-term costs. They don't understand that now we invest in reliability now, we start making more profit now. So that means it becomes important for us uh, to, to persuade our decision makers in a language they understand using the concept of value that matters to them that, hey, we can, actually start making value as of creating value as of today not four to five years in the future when we start worrying about warranty returns in fact that's where you make most of your money from by having a less uh, traumatic production process where you spend less time having to fight fires i see another question here so or comment sorry what's going on here Remediation activities are serial thieves that steal again and again. Well, it's a really good point. You don't fix systemically, you don't impl implement a corrective action, then what you're going to fix today will be the same thing you're going to fix tomorrow if you have not removed the root cause. So we come back to prevention 
and prevention really includes not just it's bigger than just those things we, we we see there it's about continual improvement it's about practice it's understanding the vital few failure mechanisms that make the biggest difference or have the biggest impact on uh, on your value so let's look at corrective maintenance for example now, you, now that it's been raised it can be the actual cost of maintenance particularly in an asset management framework it could also be the warranty cost and we have a very simple equation here which would be hopefully the only equation I'll bust out today, which is uh, essentially uh, you will take the warranty reliability, the actual warranty reliability away from one. So if your product is 95% reliable after its warranty period, then that implies that 5% of your products have failed. Uh, you multiply that by the total number of products you've sold and you multiply that by the cost of each one to repair. And that could be sometimes simply replacing whatever it is that you, uh, you have sold. So that's a very basic cost of remediation, but it's much, much bigger than that. So what we've covered so far are hard value elements. These are things that we can calculate realistically, even reliability, even these corrective maintenance numbers, we can calculate those or estimate those using some, some analysis, uh, which is defendable, logical and plausible. But there is so much more than what we call hard, hard uh, components of the reliability value map uh, based on certain characteristics. But these just these things just scratch the surface. So if we go back to our, our reliability value map as we just talked about, then there's things like time to market or schedule. How do you put a value on your time to market or schedule? How do you do that? That is something we just thought I could see is uh, in one of the questions or comments put forward reliability reduces time to market but how do we quantify that how do we how do we actually put it into some sort of model and say we invest seven dollars fifty in reliability right now we'll reduce our product uh, time to market by 17 percent or whatever it is that that sort of that sort of model that sort of study that sort of uh, uh, function does not exist and I sense that's where a lot of our frustration comes from we know that we invest in reliability the time to market goes down number of defects goes down in, in a typically monumental way. So it then becomes up to us as reliability engineers to learn how to communicate the value of reducing time to market. The other thing we can talk about is market share, the number of customers purchasing the system or product. How does that relate to reliability? How do we do a Weibull plot and say, and say that market share is going to increase by two or 3%? We, we simply cannot easily do that at least. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But these are examples of soft characteristics. So let's look at market share, for example. Market share is a function or, or, or based on uh, essentially new customers, return customers and lost customers. So if you're, if you're trying to, to uh, compile the business case for reliability, you need to understand that these are, these are some things that could help you calculate uh, things like market share, these soft cost drivers. Now, this approach is one approach. If there's a better approach, you use it. But the idea is put some structure there, put something which you can defend, no matter how soft it feels, no matter how abstract it might feel to decision makers. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's at least do, uh, go, through this, go through these steps and see if we can, uh, we can start talking in a language they understand, especially if we show that we've done our due diligence. What we can't do is just say, hey, look, it's, we're going to increase reliability by 2%. We're pretty sure that's going to drive up market share. The end. People won't respond well to that. We need to back this up at least uh, with some logic to that claim. All right, so we want, to, uh, we want to focus on return and lost customers when it comes to reliability because new customers are, are, are something which are based on brand and reputation and things like that, which is, a, which is the next thing that happens once our product's been out there and, and and uh, demonstrated who we are as an organization. The return and the lost customers, the ones that really matter to us right now, they're based on the products we, that uh, they purchase from our organization. They're the, they're the ones who will uh, respond immediately to the performance they observe. So the return and the lost customers, they feed into reputation. They will be the ones who talk about what it is our, our product has done or has not done which then uh, influences with our marketing team, our new customers. So this is how it works. 
So marketing is a very important part of this. So for example, here is a um, here is a uh, an ad for a for a laptop, Republic of Gamers laptop. It's a little bit dated now, but you can see that our, this this is an example of how marketing teams make uh, make the case for buying this particular computer or this particular product. But more and more importantly these days, people can go online and see comparatively similar products. Um, you can the Republic of Gamers uh, computer is on the right hand side. And it only has one and a half stars out of a total of five, whereas the one on the left, which costs just about the same amount of money, has five stars. So this is where it matters. This is where lost and returned customers um, will influence our reputation. So which one would you buy? So market share involves reputation and marketing. And then there's time to market. We talk about assurance, for example, testing and analysis. How much does it cost to actually show that's our uh, that our thing meets our requirements, and that that uh, that means we need to have confidence on our on our on our uh, testing methodologies, and this all takes time and money. And so our reliability value map is now a little bit more expansive. So this is an example of a reliability value map. You, you should, if you want to be serious about doing this yourself, create one which is similar to this. Start with return, support, outlay, and assets, and then you should be able to start building up your own reliability value map, which then helps you inform your language, your business cases, and essentially the decision-making of you and the people around you. So we also know that they're not independent. So for example, if we look at preventive maintenance and corrective maintenance, we know that preventive maintenance influences corrective maintenance. So we need to consider one uh, while also considering the other. So that's one example. So let's go back to our, once we've got our reliability value map, we can then go back and start putting some dollar figures to each one. So let's have a look at our calculating warranty costs, for example. So we expect to sell 10,000 wireless modem routers. Each, each wireless modem router has a two year warranty um, and warranty repair involves replacing that unit with a cost at a cost of $125. So what are the expected warranty costs? Well, we do we do an analysis and testing, and we determine the hazard or failure rate of the uh, of the wireless modem router as it changes over time, and this is what we get. So our reliability team have done this; they've come up with this particular uh, uh, hazard rate for our wireless modem router. We have infant mortality, and of course, we start to wear out past the two-year mark. And so our reliability curve looks like that: it goes down relatively quickly during the infant mortality period. Uh, steadies out and then starts to, starts to increase, uh, decrease further, sorry, after the three year mark. There's our warranty period there. So we're able to estimate that our warranty reliability will be 92.4%, which means that 7.6% of our routers will fail within the warranty period. We'll put it into this equation here, which means that we expect to spend $95,000 on warranty repair for our wireless modem router. And so this influences our value because we need to take that away from whatever is whatever is left at the end. So the key reliability metric here is warranty reliability. Now this is the other benefit of doing the reliability value map. Once you put these dollar figures in here, you know what what metrics matter to you. It's not MTBF, it's not average failure rate, it's warranty reliability. Okay, let's see. So do I get another question come up? So, so I see that another question has come up, I might have missed this, sorry Mark, where it says time to market isn't continuous, model year changes in automotive tends, uh, automotive tends to be more discreet. I, that's a really good point Mark, there's, the, uh, there's this whole continuous production process where you just incrementally change your models. Uh, but that said, I don't think that changes the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the principle of what we're trying to say. If, you're, if you have a reliability mindset, even if you have a continuous production philosophy, you will tend to spend less time putting fires out, you will tend to spend less time managing crises during that production time so that you'll spend a lot less money, a lot less time and have a much faster continuous uh, production process, which means that while time to market is not necessarily the key metric here, you'll just put out more advanced products and things and systems more quickly than your competitors which then goes back into market share and reputation. All right, so let's have a look at some of these softer things. 
But before we do that, sorry, got ahead of myself. Let's look. If we, if you're wanting to know what a good warranty cost deal, sorry, what good warranty benchmark is, um, there are resources like this, warrantyweek.com, for example, and they do a really good job of getting as much data as they can. It's not easy to talk about how much value is associated with things like warranty reliability. So here is a US average warranty cost and accrual rates over the last uh, 20 years or so. You can see that at at around the point of the time where the global financial crisis was doing its thing, you can see that the warranty accrual, accruals uh, were much, oh, sorry. The warranty accruals, I'm trying to get a pen here to, to highlight, uh, were much less than the warranty claims. Now you can see that in 2009, the warranty claims went through the roof. Now the reason why is because uh, companies in, in an attempt to stay afloat, in an attempt to cut costs, in an attempt to uh, deal with declining revenue, spent less time on quality and reliability up front. But they had to pay for it. it always, you can't do these things without being, being a, a follow-on effect. So it was essentially because people started cutting costs in 2008, we see this big spike in claims when less uh, lower quality equipment and, and products got released to the markets. Um, but the companies weren't keeping as much money in the bank, which is the accrual part of it, to cover these costs. So all of a sudden we have these additional costs that the companies weren't considering at the time. And that is why a lot of companies went bankrupt. You can sort of understand it in a way, they had to cut costs from the start, but the reality is that the chickens will always come home to roost. And uh, you can see just, just how, how big an effect uh, spending less time on things like quality and reliability have um, to, uh, to then, uh, to then make a, a sorry, where was I going with that? Let's just this 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 particular uh, graphic illustrates just how clearly the relationship between quality, reliability, and performance later on will uh, affect things like value and things like costs associated with corrective maintenance and warranty action. Okay, but you might say, well, these figures appear low. Why might they appear low? Because because these you can see on the vertical axis the percentages were between one and two percent. But remember, for typical profit margins are between five and ten percent. A one to two percent amount of revenue dedicated to warranty is a major cost driver. So if you're spending two percent of your sales dollar on warranty costs and your profit margin is as low as five percent, well that's half your profit margin gone. We also need to be aware that these are numbers are averages across multiple industries. And so satisfactory warranty performance can range from one to 10% and satisfactory is a very subjective term. So uh, just if these are good ways of trying to articulate or trying to, uh, uh, trying to get a hold of quantifying the value of warranty reliability. Now just to, important, to, to reinforce the importance of warranty, Hewlett-Packard 10X project, we started with that quote from John Young from the start. You might recall the 10X project was to reduce the failure rates by a factor of 10 over 10 years. And the red line represents the sort of uh, beautiful uh, continually re reducing um, failure rate. And the blue line represents how they actually went. They actually didn't get down to 10%, they got to 12.5%, which is not a failure. They clearly had a huge, huge improvement. They didn't quite get to where the goal was. They became almost immaterial because John Young wanted a reliability mindset. He wanted people to focus on making good equipment, reliable equipment, quality products. And in terms of the warranty cost themselves, how much did the direct warranty cost that? Uh, how, what were the scale of the direct warranty savings? Um, that was the actual warranty cost Hewlett Packard uh, spent over the over the. Uh, 10x project and this is the red line represents what it would have been had they done nothing so they saved 808 million dollars um, just on warranty costs alone don't forget by year two they had saved 200 million dollars in warehousing costs alone you can see on the chart uh, where year two um, appears to be on the uh, total amount of savings made so let's just say they are saving 100 million dollars per year at minimum uh, through warehousing cost reductions, you can just imagine how many billions of dollars this 10X project actually um, gave the, uh, the organization. 
and the reputation that this would have uh, this would have um, created as well. The, rep the the additional value associated with people wanting to buy more quality Hewlett, uh, Hewlett Packard products. So let's talk about reputational characteristics. So I can see a couple of questions where there's frustration associated with these softer metrics. So let's go back to our lost customers. Here's our market share. We have new customers, return customers, and lost customers. Let's focus on lost customers first. Here is one way of many of dealing with our reputational value as it relates to reliability. So we have customers which have warranty claims. We know we should be able to estimate what percentage of total customers this, this will be. Obviously, if you have a warranty reliability of 95%, then 5% of your customers will have warranty claims. They'll either be satisfied, neutral, or dissatisfied with the, uh, with the uh, treatment they get from your organization. You can then have a relatively good guess about the breakdown of the customer experience. These are guesses. These aren't the result of a, a double-blind study. But if you've got a marketing team, if you've got a field service team, they should be able to give you some good best guesses about how many customers are satisfied with how they're treated when they get a, when they have a, a warranty claim, how many are neutral, how many are dissatisfied. Then there's customers, customers with other issues, such as your device going past the warranty period, but they still think there's some sort of problem with it. They might, they might complain, they might not complain. Of those who complain, what is their experience? Again, we assign percentages to each one of these. Then there's customers with no complaints, customers that really enjoy your products. And even though these customers, a fraction of them will always go to a competitor, we call this attrition. So you have these different types of customers and you've got these different percentages which you can estimate and you should be able to estimate them. And if you put them all together, you can come up with something like this. You can come up with a breakdown of satisfied, neutral, dissatisfied customers. You can then work out you know, who are not going to repurchase based on natural attrition rates. You can have a guess at these numbers, which means that, and you can also have a guess at the number of customers lost due to word of mouth, which means that you can also use that, that little tree to get a customer breakdown. And for example, we can see that 81% of our customers will have no problem um, with, our, with our device, our product. 12% of those will just not repurchase because of natural attrition. And this becomes our baseline for uh, for our uh, for all our calculations or estimates later on. And if we sum all these things together, we can essentially say have a guess at uh, the number of customers who are not going to purchase our product as a result of their experience, good, bad, or indifferent. And we have potential customers lost due to word of mouth. So if there are 10,000 current customers, defects defects in this example are causing 796 lost sales just because we put some percentages next to customer experiences. And this represents $11,938 in lost profit if the profit per sale is $15. So this allows us to start putting some numbers uh, against these, uh, these soft, uh, value, uh, soft value metrics. But these are just estimates. How do we reduce the uncertainty? Well, the first thing we can do is do a sensitivity analysis. And if we do a sensitivity analysis, we can work out that, for example, the biggest influence of our lost sales or the biggest factor that drives down sales in this example are percentage of customers with other issues. And this is all based on those percentage estimates we came up with. These are all based on, um, on the numbers or, 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 the, or our model of the customer experience. And if we didn't do this, we wouldn't be able to surmise that, hey, we need to really focus on customers that have other issues besides warranty, warranty uh, claims. It could be the user experience, it could be the user interface. It could also be the expectations of our product to work, be, work beyond the warranty period. So the, all these things matter, which means that if the customer experience is based on not just warranty reliability, but service life reliability, where the service life is whatever the customer defines it to be, then we uh, we know that we have uh, we can include this sort of analysis in our uh, in our business case. And it also means that if we're going to invest any resources into into uh, working out the effect of reliability on market share and reputation more broadly, we're going to focus on this factor first. So we've already got already got a clue for ongoing analysis. So soft cost drivers are equally important, if not easy to calculate. 
So where do we stop the analysis? Where do we stop? Um, where do we stop trying to model reliability value when it comes to all this stuff? Uh, we we want all we want is a decision maker essentially to do something in, in that uh, that supports our reliability vision, which I'm presuming is going to support the value of our organisation. We typically want to focus on the hard drivers first, um, and then and then go from there. If we need to have soft cost drivers as well to bolster the business case, that's great. But focus on your hard cost drivers, then add the, the soft cost drivers to it as well to really make your case. Now, for example, let's just say this time to market thing. How do we put a, a dollar figure on that? How do we say, you know, if we, if we spend this much money on reliability now, how much money do we save in the future? We need to sometimes reduce ourselves to anecdotal evidence. We have got a bunch of reliability engineers out there who have, a, who have lots of experiences who can potentially give you um, examples of where this person went into that organisation and did a failure mode and effect analysis and they uncovered three failure modes that wouldn't have been otherwise uncovered until the final production run, which meant they were able to save X million dollars in terms of delays, things like that. Sometimes you need to have that anecdotal evidence. And when you have that anecdotal evidence, you can, you can start talking to your decision makers and then maybe, if it's the right thing to do, create that same little tree we did uh, as we did for our, our uh, reputational, uh, reputational value and say, hey, look, if we, just, if we just save, if we just prevent one defect from getting from this iteration of design to the next, then we will save ourselves X million dollars because we because whenever that happens, we tend to have people spend 10 weeks resolving the problem. It's a workforce of this many. They have to stop doing these things over here. So just put some dollar figures to the amount of money and time it takes to rectify a defect. So if you're familiar can save typically one or two defects, it pays for itself several times over. Typically for me is, and I know I'm, I'm focusing on for me is here, but typically for me is, will give you tons of defects, or sorry, help you remove tons of defects before your first design. It will make your first design a very reliable design. So that is one way of, of trying to articulate how much value there is associated with time to market. Create this little tree that we did for reputation. Just do some what if scenarios. Let's just say we know that if we if you prevent this, this uh, defect from getting to the next stage, we will typically save ourselves this amount of money. And don't forget, we often use the rule of tens where the amount of time or money it takes to rectify a problem increases by a factor of 10 every time you go from one iteration of design to the next. So it's up to you to create that scenario. So this is how much it's gonna cost. I've spoken to our budgeting team, I've spoken to our finance team, I've spoken to our engineers, our graybeards who say, yeah, when we solve a problem at this part of our design process, it costs us, this, takes, about, takes this much time and money. We do it at this time of our production, sorry, this stage of our production process, it's, it costs us this much time and money, which means that you can start putting towards, toward putting the business case towards a FAMIA, a reliability program, halt testing, whatever it is that uh, you think is going to add value to your organisation. And you have a meaty business case that decision makers tend to like to see, even if it's soft cost drivers and it's based on estimates. And the other thing you can do is, if you are faced with a with a um, with, with a uh, with a decision maker who says that's all well and good, but I'm not a huge fan of soft cost drivers. I'm not a, I'm not really a fan of the estimates you've come up with on the board. Then one of the things you can do, which sometimes works, is ask that decision maker who's having problems with the figures you're putting into your model. Ask them to put their figures in there. That sometimes shuts them up. But what you can't do is just go there and say, hey, look, I think we're going to save this amount of money because I said so, if we do this reliability thing. Um, what you want to do is, is try to go there, with, go there with that structure. I know I'm harping on it, but try and create that sort of decision tree, that, uh, that uh, tree we did for, for the, uh, uh, for the uh, reputational stuff. Try and just do something. Just put some numbers in there. If you can't, if you don't know what the numbers are, have an educated guess as you're sitting at your desk. If you can speak to people, try and get their educated guesses. The benefit of that is that you get their buy-in. If you say, I've spoken to 150 people, big number I know, but if you say, I've spoken to a number of people across all the skill sets in their organisation, and these are their best guesses, and this is what we think we're going to save, 
particularly if that number is an extraordinarily high amount, it makes it easy for your decision maker to say, yes, we'll purchase that whole test chamber. Yes, we'll do for Mia. Now I get it, I take it seriously. So the question I'll ask you guys now, what are some very specific challenges you have faced in terms of trying to convince non-reliability folk that doing something related to reliability matters? I'm looking forward to questions and comments coming through. We'll see if we can deal with them in the last 10 minutes of this webinar. And while that, those, those are coming through, I'll go back to the questions that were asked um, at the start or, or some of the topics that were covered. One person mentioned the total cost of ownership, which is a very valuable metric, especially for our military clients because they tend to like or tend to use that particular acronym. Um, but don't always limit, don't just limit your total cost of ownership, uh, sorry, don't just limit value considerations to total cost of ownership. We just talked about reputation. I know it's not as relevant in military circles, but there are always things beyond the total cost of ownership um, for, for reliability. Um, sometimes people don't consider a potential reduction in fleet size if you improve reliability in total cost of ownership. So make sure you always challenge what it means to, uh, to calculate total cost of ownership as well. Okay, see so a question is, a couple of questions are coming through. So we have show them RMA data and the cost of, uh, of FA data, failure analysis. Uh, leaders like to cherry pick data points and use it to represent the design when there is data to show the real performance is lower than the cherry picked value. Um, that is a problem which goes beyond reliability. I'm not trying to brush that under a carpet. Um, if you have one test result where, where everything was great, and another test result where everything was bad, well, you know which test is going to be, uh, which is going to be uh, quoted in the boardroom, so to speak. One thing you can do is always bring it back to value that matters. So typically when that happens, when you're doing a cherry picking, the decision maker is all about getting to the next step of the process. If you can arrest that rush to get through that gate and before that person goes to, uh, goes to the next gate, if you're able to really understand that decision maker's concept of value, what value means to them and say, hey, look, if this test result you're ignoring is true, it's going to cost your division X million dollars and six months worth of delay in, in, by the end of this quarter. And here's why I think that's the case. It gives you, so it gives you a chance of, uh, of arresting that thought process, arresting that uh, rush to pass on what is the cherry pick good news and, and with any luck, you might get some decision makers who take you seriously. Of course, you need decision makers who think rationally. You need decision makers whose uh, performance appraisal is not just based on making budget and schedule now. So you need to have that on your side as well. Um, another one is uh, marketing team agreeing that product specs with customers without evaluating reliability engineers on board with the agreed specs is a very, very, uh, it's, it's, it's a very uh, common issue and common complaint reliability engineers have. So sometimes you can, again, get ahead of the curve. After, mar after the marketing team has already engaged a client, it's sort of done. What you need to do, one thing you can do, or shouldn't be, well, I should say, is uh, if you can form a, a relationship with your marketing team before the next client comes along, if you can say, hey, look, Again, here is the value which is which is associated with your decision to say we have a, we're going to offer a 10-year warranty period instead of a five-year warranty period. If you can talk to them in value, which if, even if it doesn't matter to them um, directly, hopefully they understand the, what it is your organisation is trying to do. If you're able to put some meat behind the the analysis, including soft drivers, so on and so forth, say so look, you're, what you're what you're promising to our customers is going to cost us is going to cost us this in the future and say hey the percentage of customers which will have an issue a customer whose experience won't meet the expectations you set them will be this high start using metrics that matter to them now i can't promise it's going to change everything but if you can also come to them and say look this is a metric that actually matters to customers it's not mtbf it's warranty this warranty reliability or it's or it's this or it's the, the downtime it's the amount of uh, they don't. They don't care how often, how often it breaks per se. They want to. We want us. They want us to fix these things within three nanoseconds. 
if you can say this is what matters for customers to the end users and all of a sudden your marketing team might be armed with information that competitors who don't have that relationship with market, their marketing teams internally then your organization now might be able to communicate performance and metrics which customers value more highly so that's not the answer per se but one thing you might want to try is trying to engage with your uh, marketing team have a workshop before they have the emotion associated with trying to close a deal with a client on the other side of the desk uh, the next day. It's too, it's too late to, uh, to try and repercharge or try to uh, do anything about a promise that's already been made to a client. I can see another comment coming through. The good, better projects consider whole life costs along with the system asset life cycle. I agree, I'm interpreting that question or comment as, uh, as essentially decisions made at every stage of the development process take into consideration the benefit and the cost of the of that decision across the entire life cycle not just the next design gate which i wholeheartedly agree with and the, re the sad reality is that organizations who don't value that are, are largely toxic or can be toxic i should say um, that problem is bigger than you and the message you're trying to sell Okay, if there's nothing else coming through, what did we talk about today? I, I think that uh, there is a clear sentimental, clear um, frustration amongst all of us that people don't listen to us as reliability engineers when it comes to communicating value associated with good reliability deeds. So this webinar is actually supposed to focus on how we go about understanding all the value associated with our reliability decision making. And it can start with the reliability value map. You have those four categories, two are positive, two are, uh, two are negative. But if you can just sit down, even yourself or your small reliability engineering team and brainstorm the reliability value map as it relates to your organization, you might be surprised about all the second and third and fourth order um, sources of value, which you didn't initially think were important. But once you have on your reliability value map, it gives you something to go and do some analysis on how much how much is reputation affected by things starting within the warranty period well you can create a structure you can create a decision tree or a or a not necessarily a decision tree you can create a tree which helps you understand what the effect of each customer experience is the likelihood of those customer experiences and the, and the dollar impact on on your profit on your bottom line for that particular product you can do the same for time to market. If your familiar saves you one defect, you, you know how much it costs. Well, you could estimate how much it costs in terms of time and money to rectify defects in stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four of your product development process, whatever st those stages mean to you. If you can get those dollar estimates and say, look, we just need to prevent one or two defects for our, for our familiar, our halt chamber, our finite element analysis, our whatever it is to, uh, for, it to, be, to, for it to pay itself, then you start to build this anecdotal business case, which has some numbers, some meat behind it. And I suppose the really important thing is when you come, to, when it comes time to present your analysis, you need to understand what your decision maker values. Don't talk to them in a, in a value metric which doesn't matter to them, even if that is somewhat you know, counterproductive to the organizational benefit. If your decision maker is all about profit or sorry, uh, uh, making budget and schedule this year, then talk to them in terms of time to market. Talk to them in terms of the amount of defects we'll save by doing it for me or upfront. If your decision maker is all about whole of life, uh, total cost of ownership or all those, all those costs and benefits associated with the entire life cycle of your product, then talk to them about warranty reliability, service life reliability, all those sorts of things. Work out what what measure of value matters to your decision maker? If it's a marketing team, talk to them about the detrimental effects this will have on customer um, or brand reputation if you promise them something which goes beyond the actual capacity of your, of your product. You might even be able to teach a marketing team something, but it comes back to talking in the value and in, in the, in the uh, value metric which matters to them. So are there any further questions? If there's no further questions, we're just one minute past the hour. Um, thank you everyone for attending. But the main point of this conversation was 
what the reliability value map is. And I suppose the next part is how to use that, that knowledge, but the value map itself can be quite a very, quite a useful uh, tool, brainstorming activity to try and uh, understand the full extent of value that reliability decisions can create for your organization. So if there's nothing else, uh, thank you for your wonderful feedback and I look forward to uh, talking to you all, God, talking, sorry, talking to you all uh, next month.